If you are able, I would encourage you to rise and read God's Word from Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 to 30, which is the conclusion of the first chapter. Here, the reading of God's Word. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. The reading of God's Word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we do indeed give you thanks for this, your word. So I pray that you would take these words, that you, with the power of the Holy Spirit, would mold our lives, would guide us and would shape us to be more like Christ, that we would be ones that follow the gospel of life. So guide my words. Watch over them. In Jesus' strong name we pray. Amen. A young man came to W.E. Gladstone. You may be seated. I'm sorry. (laughs) Sorry about that. Let's try that again. (laughs) A young man came to W.E. Gladstone when he was Prime Minister of England and said, Mr. Gladstone, I would appreciate you giving me a few minutes in which I might lay before you my plans for the future. Gladstone said, okay, sure. And he said, I would like to study law. Yes, said the great statement, statesman, and then what? Then, sir, I would like to gain entrance to the bar of England. Yes, young man, then what? Then, sir, I hope to have a place in Parliament in the House of the Lords. Yes, young man, what then? said Mr. Gladstone. Then I hope to do great things for Britain. Yes, young man, what then? Then, sir, I hope to retire and take it easy. Yes, young man, and what then? He tenaciously asked. Well, then, Mr. Gladstone, I suppose I will die. Yes, young man, and what then? The young man hesitated and said, I haven't really thought further than that. Looking at the young man sternly and steadily, Gladstone said, Young man, sounds much like the American dream, doesn't it? But... It comes from a story of an English young man. Whether true or otherwise, I'm not sure if it's a true story or not. It takes place in England. Therefore, perhaps American dream isn't necessarily the American dream, is it? Maybe it's the human dream. Right? Each of us wants to be respected and honored. Each of us wants to do great things for whomever, whether it's for our country, our family, our Spouses, our kids, our grandkids, our companies. We want to do great things. Each of us wants to be able to one day to stop working and just take it easy. Because somehow we've earned it. And then each of us will indeed die. Then what? In this simple story, we are torn asunder, aren't we? Our desires, our hopes... Our dreams are exposed as little more than what then? What then? Right? So the question I have for you this morning, one of the questions I have for you this morning is, what are your hopes? What are your dreams? What then? 
What are you living for? What does it mean for you to live? In Paul's letter to the Philippians, they most certainly were asking these similar questions. They were worried about these things. The things of comfort and security were at the forefront of their struggles, their suffering. This is one of the reasons why Paul is writing to them. They were concerned for their freedom, for their way of life. And yes, even some of them for their lives itself. But as we saw last week, Paul is encouraging his dear friends to rejoice in the fact that the Gospel is being preached and proclaimed in any and all situations. And because of that, we don't have to fear. Because Jesus is being proclaimed. Take heart. Be strengthened by this reality of who Jesus is and and what He has done for them. And then in verses 28 and 29, Paul is very clear about the intentions for his group of friends He wants them to not be afraid. For they are in a situation where they have cause to be afraid. Remember, if you will, that they are in Philippi, a very pro-Roman city, a very pro-emperor city, and you just don't cross the emperor and, and hope that goes well for you. That just won't happen. So they were daily afraid of who they were and the faith that they had. Paul wanted them to have strength. Encourage in one thing. That one thing is the very thing that has been granted to them. That one thing that's been granted to them gives them confidence. Gives him confidence that even while he is chained to a prison wall, he feels secure. And he's still striving for something, even though he's suffering in a jail. That security, that comfort, that hope is in His and their deliverance. Do you see that? In verse 19, He says, I know this. I know that my confidence is in my deliverance. The word He uses is for deliverance, and He uses the same word in verse 28, but you're thinking as good Bible readers that we all are, and looking at verses 19 and 28, you say, well, I see deliverance in verse 19, but I don't see it in 28. Ryan, what are you talking about? Well, the original language is exactly the same word. The word for deliverance in verse 19 is also the very same word as the one that he uses. You see that? But of your salvation. Deliverance and salvation is the same Greek word, soterion. And if you are astute in English or Latin phraseology and theology, there's a word called soteriology, which is the study of salvation, particularly of Jesus' salvation. So out of this word soteriology, we get this word as its stem, soterion, which in the Greek means salvation. And Paul is saying, is saying here to the people of Philippi and to us, I'm confident in one thing, in my deliverance, in your deliverance, in our salvation. This soterion then is the very foundation upon which Paul builds this case is what does it look like What does it mean to live? And this is the question that he asks. But there is even more to his confidence than even just this deliverance or or salvation. Paul says to them that this salvation is granted to them for the glory of Jesus Christ in order that a result may come about. What is that result? It's a good question. The result is belief in the Gospel. And oh yes, 
also suffered. What? If I were to ask you, as I did a second time, what are you living for? What are you hoping for? What is your dream? I would be willing to bet another cup of coffee at White Rhino that you would not have said, I want to suffer. To live as those who proclaim the Gospel, to live as those who have been saved by the grace of Jesus Christ means at least two things. That we truly believe and that there will be suffering. Friends, this is the nature of being a Christian. It flies in the face of the young man desiring to be great and to retire healthy and wealthy, doesn't it? flies in the face of the American dream. It flies in the face of comfort, of security. The path of the Christian is the path of Paul. The path of the Christian is the path of Jesus Christ. A life marked by service, suffering, and ultimately salvation. However, I say all that but yet I'm not convinced that's ultimately what Paul is trying to communicate to his friends. I'm not convinced, given the context that what Paul is talking about here, is that he's saying to them, I want you to suffer more. I don't believe he's saying that. For he's writing to them in a place of suffering. They are already in the midst of suffering. He knows that they're suffering. What he's saying to them is, I get it. And don't be surprised by it when it comes. Not that I want you to be a people of suffering. So I'm, I'm more convinced that Paul is writing this letter as a note of encouragement to them as they are currently suffering in their current context of saying, okay, take heart, people of God, Church of Philippi. But don't be surprised when hard things come. When suffering happens. Because look at my life. I'm in prison for goodness sakes. Look at Jesus' life. He went to the cross, after all. So what does He say? We should not be surprised when it comes our direction as well. Yet we need to be reminded and be aware of exactly why, again, Paul is writing this letter. They are indeed suffering. They are in the middle of it. And many of us are in the middle of it as well. So Paul is encouraging his Friends, to take heart to the reality of their salvation. Because he knows without any doubt that salvation is his and theirs. Why? Because it comes from the Lord. Therefore, this morning, I, I do not want to deny suffering. I'm not saying that suffering is not a part of our path. I, do want, I don't want to downplay suffering in any way, shape, or form. I just want us to be encouraged by it and through it. But what Paul is saying is there's something more here. There's more to the story than suffering. Look again with me at verse 28. He says, Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid because I know something else. And he says to them, And do not be frightened of anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. What does he want them to be clear about? A few things. I'm going to touch on just one of them. But first of all, he wants this to be a sign to them 
that as they stand steadfast in the grace and the understanding and the knowledge of their salvation, and that that salvation comes from God, it says to their enemies who are causing their oppression and their suffering, they can't touch you because you still rejoice because Jesus is being proclaimed. The second thing that He wants them to know is that this comes from God. It's been granted to you. He tells His friends in Ephesus a similar type of story, doesn't He? He writes to His friends in Ephesus and says, this salvation, this deliverance, this soterion is a gift that comes from the Lord. Not of your works. Not of your deeds. So that you won't boast. The message that Paul has for us this morning is a similar one. If and when suffering comes, no one Know the Lord is your Savior and He will deliver you. The message that Paul has for us this morning is directly understanding that this is granted by God. It's a gift. A gift of salvation. And so now we have an opportunity to live. And what does it mean to live? With this understanding, whether we're suffering, whether we're in trial or tears. For us to live means to live to Christ. And this is what Paul's talking about in this very familiar section of Scripture. To live is, to Christ, is, is, is Christ. What does he mean by that? He experiences Jesus. I believe that. I understand that. I like that. I want that. But I'm not always sure what that actually means. To live is Christ. We hear that. We know that. We see that. We want to believe that. But I wonder what we actually think that means. To live is Christ. And so that's what I want to do this morning is to try to, to draw that out of this text this morning to help us understand what it means to live as Christ. And ultimately and foundationally, it means one simple thing, really. It means to experience Jesus Himself, to actually know and understand, to believe and to have a relationship with Christ. That's what it means to live as Christ. For Paul, it's knowing Jesus. Knowing His salvation, His deliverance. To live means to live lives worthy of the Gospel. To live lives of security. To live a life that is striving to something. And yes, even to live a life of suffering. This is what it means to live as Christ. So let's explore that this morning as we look at this portion of Paul's letter to Philippians. To live as Christ. There was a time in my life when I wasn't always very self-confident. I thought I was but not really. I thought I knew who I was, but not really. I thought I understood what people thought about me, but not really. There was a time in my life when there was a plan, but not really. I remember in junior high school telling a peer of mine 
someone who I trusted and I've been friends with for some time about someone that I was interested in in a junior high kind of way. I didn't really think anything of the conversation at the time, and, but then later that day, it occurred to me that everyone knew of the conversation I had with my friend. It wasn't even that it mattered all that much to me that people knew or even that the girl may or may not have found out. It wasn't even that important to me because, it, okay, whatever. But what was important to me was I got burned. It was the fact that the person I trusted didn't respect the fact that I asked him not to say anything. I was burned. A bit of confidence went away. A bit of security went away. And honestly, he and I were not all that really great friends from that moment on. I thought I was self-confident. But I got burned. And I wasn't really. I thought I knew how life worked. You trust someone and they hold that trust. But not really. I was burned. So I wonder, have you ever been burned? Have you ever had someone misplace trust? Has your confidence ever been chiseled off just a little bit? Or maybe have you ever felt like you've been burned by God? Like you know how this gospel life is supposed to be, but not really. This isn't just a silly junior high story, is it? This happens often on a daily basis for each and every one of us. It happens at work, at church, at school. We wonder if we can trust anyone any longer. We start to look around and we wonder who's next? Who's the next person that's going to misplace my trust. Who's the next person that's going to burn me? Can I trust you? Can I trust you? Can I trust you or her? Can they trust me? And we also look around and we wonder, God, why did you let that happen? Why this tragedy? Why now? I don't understand. And we lose trust in God. And we begin to look around and we wonder, is God, God, are you going to be in my corner for this moment in time? Are, are you going to be there when this happens or not? We look around and it almost seems as if God's not looking out for us. This might have been the mindset of Paul and the church at Philippi as they experienced their circumstances. I don't know. But Paul recognizes this about himself and about his friends and he says, there's something that I do know. Paul says in verse 19 and verse 25 that he is secure. To live as Christ is is to be secure. Secure in this understanding of who he is and who they are in Christ Jesus. He is secure in the fact that his salvation is secure and he is secure that he will remain with them in order that they will know the joy of their salvation. In other words, they will know the opposite of fear. Here is a church that is terrified by the world around them. What's going to happen to us? Can I trust you? Can I trust you? Can I trust this person to understand what I believe in my faith? Can I trust my neighbor? Can I trust the person in the market? I don't know. They were in constant fear. And Paul says, I know this. I know where my salvation lies. I know where my deliverance lies. And I know that it's from 
the Lord. And that, therefore, does not allow me to be frightened. And so this, to me, is something that impacts us on a daily basis in our community, in our culture. Where oftentimes when we step outside of our doors, whether it's at church or at home, and we step out into the world and we wonder what's coming next. Or we turn on our TV and we think, oh no, the world is collapsing all around and what are we going to do? How are we going to do this? I'm not sure how we go about our daily walk and our daily lives. And we say, the world is a different place than I know and I am terrified. Paul is saying, that's not how we live our lives. That's not what it means to live as Christ. To live as Christ means to be secure in your understanding of who you are in Christ. Not to have this sense of fear. The simple fact of the matter is that there is struggles in life. Paul knows this firsthand, but he encourages friends to understand that security does not lie in, in their faith or, or even in his faith, but rather the faithfulness of the Lord. And that faithfulness looks like salvation, deliverance. Salvation that comes from the Lord and, and nothing else. So friends, when we find ourselves in the middle of struggle, in the middle of fear, we need not look around and wonder what's coming next. What's going to happen tomorrow as we turn on our computer or television? What's happening in our world? Instead, no, we look to the security that we have in Jesus Christ. For this is what Paul says, this is what I know. I don't know what's happening the rest of the time, but I do know that my deliverance is secure and it comes from the Lord. It comes from the person and the work of Jesus Christ. To live as Christ means to not live in fear, but to live in the knowledge and the understanding of that we are Jesus and that He has delivered us. After his lengthy statement in regards to confidence and the deliverance of Christ, no matter if he's alive or dead, Paul then continues to point out what I believe to be the most significant element of the entire passage. Verse 21 gets all the fanfare, doesn't it? <laughs> Verse 21 gets all the pub, gets all the social media likes, it gets all of the follows, it gets all of that, right? Verse 21, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But I don't even know as much if that's really what Paul's after. As much as that is a really wonderful saying, it's true. I think verse 27 to the conclusion of the chapter is really where the pub should be placed. That we should ask for the subscription and the like and the link to be shared. Verse 27 to the end of the chapter reads these words. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the Gospel of Christ. So whether I come and see you or I am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the Gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engage in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. This is the heart of what Paul is trying to communicate and this opening stanza of the letter. To live as Christ means to strive after something. To live as Christ means to be secure, and it means to strive. 
So this then is what I pray we hear over and over and over again. Above everything else in this section of Scripture, Paul says to live as Christ means to strive after something. You see that in verse 27? His desperate encouragement for this church plant is that together they strive. Side by side. Or we would say arm in arm, right? That we come alongside each other. Another contemporary phrase. That we come alongside one another side by side to live a life that reflects the Gospel. Whether they live or die. Whether there is suffering or plenty. To live as Christ means to live in a community that seeks to live according to the Gospel. So the question for us this morning is what does that mean? What does that mean for us as we seek to live our days in this community, in this church, in in this city, in this culture? In order to answer that question, I want to remind us of the very foundation of what Paul is saying. To remind us of the cornerstone of what the Gospel actually is. The very cornerstone Himself, Jesus Christ, who defines Gospel living, who is Gospel life for us. To strive for faith in the Gospel is to live in the shade of the grace of the Gospel. To understand that, as Paul tells the church in Rome, Rome, that we have been raised from death, the death that we found ourselves in our sin and misery and rebellion, and we've been raised from that death into new life. And that we have been made new creations in Christ. To understand that, then is is the very first step in understanding what it means to strive to live as Christ as a Gospel follower of grace. It's not a matter of trying to be unified. It's not a matter of trying to live this way. It's a matter of the fact that it is. That fact is that we're unified, united in Christ. That in the Gospel of grace, there is neither slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, but that we are one in Christ. The Gospel tells us that our identity in Christ is because He died our death and He rose again for our behalf. He conquered sin. He conquered hell. And He conquered death. This this new identity then is in Christ. And then yields a new confidence for us to understand that we need not fear the big bad world out there. We don't have to fear what the world will look like for our kids or our grandkids. Because the Lord has secured our deliverance and we now are living as new creatures united to Christ and united to each other. And to me, this is such a freeing revelation and understanding to know that my striving is is not orientated around me being better. My striving is not based upon me trying to obtain something or attain something. My striving, what I am after, is to understand more and more the depth of my sin and the depth of grace for my sin. It's not about flying higher and straighter. It's about striving to better understand grace and how that unites me to Christ and how that unites me to you. This is faith in the Gospel. This is faith in the Gospel for the Gospel is all about grace, not about being better. To live as Christ is to live in the grace of Christ's salvation for you. What are we striving for? What we strive for as Gospel followers, we strive for unity. We strive for what Paul is talking about here. Not in unity in some flag, but in unity in Christ. 
to strive for a better understanding of grace and how that impacts our lives, to strive to be secure in that grace, to strive to be secure in His deliverance and His salvation, to strive to understand that we know who we are as united to Christ. To live as Christ is to live in the grace of Christ's salvation. It's to strive to live under grace. To live as Christ means to strive to understand grace. To live as Christ means to be secure in the salvation of Christ. And finally, to live as Christ is to understand that life is not always going to be simple and neat in the tidy package. As a matter of fact, to live as Christ means that life will often include suffering. And suffering isn't always the big things. It can be, but to suffer for Christ can often mean to suffer the little things. The things of this life. You've heard that suffering is a gift. That when we suffer for Christ, it's alright because greater is our reward in heaven. And after all, we hear that in Matthew chapter 5, don't we? This is indeed true. It's a true statement. I believe that suffering for Christ does yield a reward in heaven. But it seems to me that when we think in these terms, that somehow Matthew and Jesus or Paul is somehow romanticizing suffering. That we need to strive to suffer. That we need to be secure in our suffering. And that we might even be able to pull that out of Philippians chapter 1. But again, I don't know that that's what Paul is ultimately trying to say because these people are already suffering. They're in the middle of it. Or maybe we say that somehow suffering is a badge of honor. And if we're not suffering, then we perhaps don't really understand what it means to be truly Christian. Let me just tell you this. Suffering is not the design of the Creator. Suffering is a result of the rebellion. Suffering is a result of sin. Suffering is an alien thing in this life. It's attacked our life because of sin. Suffering is not what we are intended for. We should not seek suffering for ourselves or for those that we love or even for those that we hate. Rather, in suffering we ought to understand something. We ought to understand that it is far more fundamental to what it means to live as Christ is to understand what Christ suffered for us. For when we suffer, and we will suffer, we will better understand grace. The tension that we see here in these verses is what Paul is referring to. We experience joy in the presence of Jesus through the presence of the Holy Spirit when we suffer. And when we suffer, there are, there are often times when the people of God surround us and we experience the joy of a community and sometimes that is as much of a balm as anything. But make no mistake, suffering is not the goal. Jesus is the goal. Suffering is not the goal of a Christian. To experience Jesus is the goal of a Christian. To experience His grace. To experience His presence. His love for us. This is what Paul is talking about. To live is Christ. 
To live as Christ is to know full well the impact of a broken world, but also to know well the full impact of grace. But to live as Christ is also to experience the full impact of God's community of people. For He says, if I live, then I get to experience you. If I die, I experience grace. Both are wonderful. Both are fantastic. But suffering is not the goal. Jesus is the goal. And when I know and understand and experience Jesus, we experience Jesus together as His community and His family and His sons and His daughters. This is what it means to live as Christ. To live as Christ is to know Jesus and to know each other. That's to be secure in His salvation. So friends, may we go from this place today as those who are encouraged by Paul to be encouraged to not be a people of fear, but to be a people of security. To live as Christ is to strive. It's to strive to understand grace. To live as Christ is to understand the suffering of Jesus and what He's done for us. So when we go from this place as those who understand that truly living is to experience Christ Jesus because He's united us to Himself as His people. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we give You thanks for this, Your Word. I pray that we will indeed be encouraged by Your words this morning that Paul wrote to this little church in Philippi. That we would understand our security that we have in Your grace. So wash over us. Make us this kind of people that we would live to Christ. Amen.